All right, why don't you go ahead and take a seat. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, grab that and meet me over in Proverbs chapter 1. Today I have the honor of starting a new sermon series with you through the summer where we're going to look at a collection of our team's favorite Proverbs, but I felt like if we're going to do that, we need to begin at the beginning, and I need to set the stage for you by looking at what this idea of wisdom is. Proverbs is a wisdom literature, and here's what I know is we all want to be wise, don't we? Here's the problem, though. If I were to ask you how to define what wisdom is, most of you would give me a different definition. Most of us know how to describe wisdom when we see it, but we don't really understand what wisdom is. We can't define it. Matter of fact, I even looked on the dictionary on on Google, and here's what it said wisdom is. Wisdom is the quality of being wise. Well, that's real helpful. (laughs) That does nothing for me. What I want to do today is I want to give you a good working definition for what wisdom is so that you can begin to be the person that you've always wanted to be anyway. So if you want to be a wise person, you kind of have to understand what wisdom is. Have have you ever watched somebody uh, paint a picture and, and you're just mesmerized? by how they take this thing and make it come to life. Maybe, maybe you're old enough to have loved Bob Ross, right? Whenever I was a kid, Bob Ross was the definition of a watching paint dry, okay? Awful, absolutely awful. But at the end of the day, you're like, dude, you painted a great picture. See, one of the things that I love about watching artists, and, and my wife got me into this, is watching how they use shading to make a picture go from 2D to 3D, to make it come alive. Actually, great writers do the same thing. Great writers use stories and illustrations and personifications and different literary techniques to make a a story jump off of the page to convey their message. Y'all, great artists make 2D come to 3D. Great writers make things come to life, and that's what wisdom does too. There's a major difference between knowledge and wisdom, okay? Knowledge is information, but wisdom is knowing what to do with that information, It's like, you might have a lot of money, but if you don't know what to do with that money, well, you won't be wise. Or or you might get a lot of fame in your life, but if you don't know what to do with that fame, it's going to crush you. Information is not the same as wisdom. Learning is not the same as living. I know a lot of really smart, dumb people, okay? Go to most universities in America. That's not in my notes, but... Information is living in 2D. Wisdom is learning to live in 3D. Wisdom literature is God's way of helping you learn to live. Matter of fact, it's so important that the Old Testament is really broken down into three major categories. If you didn't know this, you have the law, which would be encapsulated in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Okay. Then you had the prophets, which is the majority of the teachings of the Old Testament. And then you had wisdom literature. Think Job, Proverbs, Psalms. Okay. Even in, in the New Testament, Jesus speaks primarily in wisdom form. Proverbs, proverbially, he uses all these different ways to talk through parables. The book of James is known as a New Testament wisdom literature. Wisdom is so important, and the book of Proverbs is meant to take the reality of the world and make it come alive so that you can experience the world the way that it was always supposed to be. Y'all, maybe, maybe some of you just feel like you're just making it through life, like, like you're just getting by the grind of another day. Listen, I got four kids under 10. I understand what that feels like. You just get up. 
You can't wait for a cup of coffee, and you can't wait for him to go to bed. Sometimes you just wish that the day would get over, and you just make it through the day. For others of you, honestly, you're on the back end of that, and you're looking back wishing you could do it all over again. The advice that you're giving to us younger people is enjoy every moment because the days seem long, but the years are really short. Again, I feel like I'm sitting in the middle of this. Sometimes I look at my oldest daughter, who's going to turn 10, and I'm like, what happened? Yesterday, I'm changing your diaper. Today, you think I'm an idiot. Like, what, what? It's like it goes so fast. Maybe you're here today, and honestly, you can't see how anything could be good. You turn on the news, you look around at culture, and you're thinking, what the heck is going on? We can't tell the difference between a boy and a girl anymore. We got a whole month about pride when the entire Bible is about humility. Like, it just seems like everything's upside down. The answer is that it is upside down. The famous philosopher Rene Descartes set the tone for all of culture when he famously said, I think, therefore I am. You know what the problem with that statement is? It's all about I all about me. It's all about him. He starts with us, and the problem with humanity being the source of all wisdom is that there's issues there. It doesn't bring you wisdom. So let me tell you what wisdom is in a nutshell, and then I'm going to walk you through this passage. And wisdom is when you start with God at the center of your reality, it reorients all of life so that you can see the world the way it was supposed to be, and then you make decisions through that. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. It's about seeing the world properly. Like, it's almost like you put on a different set of lenses so you can see the world the way it was supposed to be. It shades in the color for you to make the world come alive so that you can see through what seems to be messed up and you can actually see the world the way it was supposed to be. Here's the big idea for the entire book of Proverbs, okay? Matter of fact, I'll tell you it's the big idea for all of wisdom. It's Proverbs chapter one, verse seven. Look at it real quick. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you'll leave that up there for just a second, let me explain to you how Hebrew poetry works, okay? The first line makes a statement in Hebrew poetry, and then the second line actually clarifies what that statement means. So if you want to know what wisdom is, look at it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, okay? That's the first line. But he's not using knowledge in the sense of uh, uh, noetic or um, I'm trying to intelligence. He's using knowledge in a sense of wisdom. They're two different things. How do you know that? Well, he tells you the second line. That's the clarifying point. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So what is wisdom? Watch this. It's really simple. It's those who are humble enough to learn wisdom and instruction from God. How do you do that? You fear him. Now, now let, me, let me tell you this really quickly. There's a lot of smart people out there that aren't humble enough to get this. This is why Rene Descartes was a fool, the dumbest smart kid you'll ever meet, because he didn't put the fear of the Lord at the beginning of his knowledge. He put himself at the beginning of his knowledge. And when you do that, all of the world gets reoriented around you, your circumstances, and your own happiness. That never goes well. Now, let's talk about fear really quickly. Fear, according to the Bible, is not about being afraid of something. It's about giving reverence and authority to something in your life. When God is at the center of your life and you're humble enough to learn from him, you begin to sit underneath his teaching, and that's where fear comes from. Think about it like this. Imagine that you went home today, and you opened up your cabinet, and you grabbed your your coffee mug out of the cabinet. And, and, and that ordinary coffee mug that you normally drink from, you, you, you find out 
that it's actually a piece of fine china that's a thousand years old and it's worth millions of dollars. In that very moment, do you, you know what happens? Your relationship to that fine piece of china changes. See, you no longer think, does this, am I afraid of it because I think it's gonna hurt me? No, you become fearful of it because you don't wanna hurt it, right? Your relationship to that piece of china changes. That's what fear looks like. When you get the gospel, you're not afraid of the gospel because you think it's gonna hurt you. No, it creates a reverence in your mind that you don't wanna hurt it, right? It's like, it's like whenever kids love their families or their, or their parents for the, uh, with the utmost respect, they fear them, and it's not that they're afraid of them, they revere them, they, they love them. It's like this. When God gets that place in your heart that you understand just how amazing and infinitely valuable the gospel is, you start to change your relationship to the gospel. You stop fearing God because you know how much he loves you, and honestly, you stop fearing anything else because you see just how big he is. Let me give you another word picture that might help you. Maybe that's that first time that you went out on a camping trip somewhere maybe out west. I remember we went, we, during COVID, we took a month and we drove out to Utah and we went glamping because that's the only kind of camping that I do, okay, the kind that's like a hotel and a tent. And we're on the, the, we're on the border between Utah and Idaho and there's no light pollution at all. And we got out of the tent and you look up at the night sky and for the very first time, you see just how big the sky is. What happens in that moment? There's a sense of fear that comes over you. You become small. But you don't become afraid of God. You actually just see how mighty and powerful and big he is, how, how little you are in comparison to the entire world. And whenever you recognize for the first time that God simply spoke and galaxies came into existence, what ends up happening is you, you change your relationship. See, John even says it like this, perfect love drives out fear. When you get the gospel, the opposite of fear being afraid of happens, you actually become really, really comfortable and you stop, you stop fearing anything. You know what the opposite of love is? It's not hate, it's fear. Fear and the bad kind of fear that puts you in a position where you're scared of things. This is why whenever you see people that don't love well, they tend to demonize the people around them because they're afraid, they're insecure. The kind of fear that God gives you doesn't, doesn't make you afraid of things. It actually makes you absolutely comfortable and at ease with anything, and that's where wisdom starts. See, when you fear God properly, you stop worrying about anything else going on around you, and it brings comfort to you. Maybe, maybe let me give you one more, one more word picture, because I think sometimes we, we struggle with this concept. Have you ever respected somebody so much? Like that when you got into their very presence, you can't speak anymore or, or you don't feel like you should speak anymore. I've told you guys that that moment whenever I was in Orlando and the, the elevator doors opened and this guy named Tim Keller stepped onto the elevator, I was like, bleh, bleh. I couldn't get a word out. I started drooling on myself. I might have wet myself a little bit, just, just a little bit. It was embarrassing. Tim's like, tries to shake my hand and I'm like this. It wasn't because I was afraid of him. It's because I had so much admiration and respect for him that I felt like it was an honor to be in his very presence. Maybe that's how you feel about your dad or your mom. And when they speak, you just shut up because you just want to hear them talk. Back in the day, before it became a clown show, I heard that's what you did with the State of the Union address. Like everybody turned on the TV and there was a, there was a sense of reverence that you listened to. 
Y'all, there are just some people that you look up to so much that you want to hear them speak. That's what wisdom is supposed to do. It makes God big in your life, so big that, he's, that you're so small that all you really want to do is listen to him. Here's why all of that matters. If you don't start with God in its proper position, everything else in your life will go wrong. It's like Matt Emmitz. If you've ever heard the story of Matt Emmitz, Matt Emmitz was the, the most profound archery person to ever live. He was so good that in the London Olympics, it was a shoe-in. He was going to win the gold medal in archery, and nobody was going to come close. Well, he hits every single bullseye, every single one, and he gets to the end, and all he has to do is land on the target anywhere, and he gets the gold medal. Matt, he takes back the bow and arrow, he shoots it, he sees the bullseye, and he walks away with a bit of, like, you know, he has some swag about him, and you hear the, and the judges were confused, nobody could figure out what happened, he hit the bullseye on the wrong target. True story, went from gold medal to not even getting on the podium. That's what, mis- that's what misplaced wisdom looks like. See, If you don't have God at the center, you might hit a bullseye, but it's not going to be the right one. And everything else in life will flow out of what you've done, and you won't have wisdom. If you don't start with the fear of the Lord, you're going to miss the target completely. If you want to be wise, you have to start with God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would look like in our culture if you started with God? Here's the conversations I have, but I want to go live with my girlfriend. Like, it makes sense. Everybody tells me it's pragmatic. We're going to have a house together. Our bills are going to be less. Like, life is going to be fused together. It's not hurting anyone, except that God said it's not good for you. Now, practically speaking, if you do that, let me just tell you, divorce rates go way up. Oh, can I just say this? This is a myth, okay? You'll hear that divorce rates among Christians and non-Christians are about the same. That's because everybody identifies as a Christian. If you actually look at real stats, people who go to church regularly have less than 10% divorce rate, okay? Those who actually follow Jesus tend to have healthier, better lives. Wisdom literature, even if you're not a Christian, let me just tell you, if you just follow what the Bible says, you're probably gonna live longer and be happier and do better in life. See, See what happens when you start with God? Okay, maybe it makes pragmatic sense, but what does God's word say? How about parenting? Parenting, when was the last time you woke up in the morning and you said, God, what do you want me to do with my kids? You know, when I worked at the Summit Church in North Carolina, we, we had a reputation for being a sending church, and we would send many, many, many families over to the mission field. And every single year, we'd have hundreds, and I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of college students that wanted to go move overseas. Do you know what our biggest obstacle for kids moving overseas was? Their parents. We would get phone calls and emails, and we'd be told, not you. I didn't spend money for you to go to Duke University so that you can go live in a dangerous place. I spent that money so you can be a doctor. Yo, do you know what the Bible talks about when it talks about parenting? It says that your kids, your kids are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Do you know what that means? Do you know what you do with arrows in the hands of a warrior? You shoot those arrows into the heart of the enemy. The way the Bible talks about your kids is that you're supposed to prepare them as stewards to go into battle against evil. When was the last time you thought about your kids like that? Are you stewarding your kids for God's ultimate glory or are you thinking about what's best for them? Listen to me. I think God cares way more about where your kids spend eternity than where they go to university. And I think you should too. 
Wisdom is starting your life off by saying, God, what do you want for my life? And submitting to that. You know how counterculture that is? In America, we start with, God, what do I want to do? And if my life fits into the bucket of what you want to do and we intersect those two things together, praise God. But if it doesn't, I'm going with mine. So with that being the framework for all of wisdom, let me give you five tangible characteristics from this text that practically embodies wisdom from fearing the Lord. Okay, the, over, under, or the overflow of that is this. Here's number one. Wise people are disciplined people. Wise people are disciplined people. Look at verse two. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight. That word instruction is actually translated better as disciplined. Here's what I know. Wisdom is available to anyone who wants it, but it's not easy to receive. It takes discipline. See, most of us want to be wise, but I'm gonna be honest with you, most of us don't wanna do the things that it takes to be wise. Like if you're going to put yourself underneath God, that means that you have to develop rhythms of living for God's word in your life. How in the world can you have a relationship with God if you don't spend any time with God? You have to prioritize him. You have to spend time with him. I'm telling you, worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom is about learning from your own mistakes. And that is just stupid. It's not wisdom to learn from your own mistake. Godly wisdom is learning from God so you don't have to make those mistakes. You get that, right? Oftentimes we're like, man, you just learn from your own mistakes. How about if you never had to actually have those mistakes because you spent time learning from God? Isn't that what every parent wants for their kids? I don't want my kids to ruin their lives and then be like, you learn from your mistakes. No, I want them to learn from God and never make those mistakes. Listen, write this down. The world says to live to learn, but the Bible says learn to live. That, that's worldlyism is live to learn. Godly wisdom is learn to live. They're very different. All of this takes discipline. I think the reason why most of us live super unwise lives is because it's hard work to be disciplined people. You know, some of you know this, I, I had the privilege of being a Division I athlete. And whenever I went off to college, um, I thought I was awesome. And I showed up on campus and everybody was a high school American. Everybody won state championships. Everybody was really, really good. Every team we played, no matter if we played Ohio State or if we played Miami of Ohio, they were all really good athletes. Do you know what the difference between those who made it and those who didn't make it was? Discipline. See, some of us like to go out and party all night. Others of us like to be disciplined and work on their craft. I'm telling you, the same thing is true in most of life. You can know wisdom and instruction, but you have to pursue it. Yo, you are not born into it any more than my kids are born angels. My one-year-old, Keller, the other day, kid you not, um, he's sitting on Allison's lap, and my five-year-old, Elliot, decides to get on Allison's lap, and Keller bit Elliot because he was mad, and we didn't teach him that. You know, like, he, he might be an angel, but he's more like a fallen angel sometimes. Right? I got to teach him. I got to discipline him to be a certain type of person. The same thing is true with you. If you want to be wise... It takes a lot more than simply learning some skills. It's going to take you, here's the next one, gaining insight. You notice that in verse two, disciplined people have insight. They gain insight. Here's what that means. It means that you can see things that other people don't see. I think that walking with God gives you a sense of discernment 
that most of the world doesn't have. You, you can read the room, if you will, or the way we talk about it in modern day language is you have emotional intelligence. You feel the things at a deeper level than other people do. Wisdom is about seeing the world at a deeper level. It's about feeling people's emotions and entering into their world for just a second so that you can have empathy and understanding. You gotta get beyond platitudes, right? Here's the most common platitude of our day. Hey man, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Good, oh great, that's great, let's move on. Statistically speaking, none of that's true. You see, listen, it's not rules to follow. It's about having a rule of life that shapes the type of person that you are. Wisdom is more about who you are than what you do. It's about developing godly character, about becoming someone, so that as you do that, you see the world differently. Again, you can write this down. Instead of learning rules for life, God wants you to develop a rule, for, a rule of life. That's deeper stuff. That's spending time with God and developing a certain kind of character so that you become the type of person that can navigate the complexities of this world because this world is not always black and white. Can I just give you two practical, practical ways to do this? Letter A is this. Give yourself to accountability. I, I, I use that phraseology on purpose. There, there's a difference between asking someone to hold you accountable and you giving yourself to somebody to be accountable to them. You see what the difference there is? You want to be accountable to people. You want to be the type of person that is accountable. Okay, here's letter B. Give yourself to God. Now, what I mean by that is before you give yourselves to others, you should be actively giving yourself to God through prayer, through the discipline of knowing his word, and through submitting to his will. What I find interesting is the Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. You know what it means? It does not mean to say sorry. Contrary to popular belief, repentance, metanoia, literally means to change your mind about something. It's actually where we get the, the English word metamorphosis. It's a change in who you are. What, listen to what it means. It means that you change your mind about God. So you put God in the center, and because God is in the center, you literally don't want to do the things that you used to do. You turn away from those because you're turning to something else. Okay, that's what it means to turn yourself to God. The idea here that I want you to get after is to be accountable to other people and to be accountable to God is having a vertical relationship with God that overflows into a horizontal relationship with each other. Jesus, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. Now, I've been doing this long enough to know that we don't love anybody more than we love ourselves. As much as we like to say that, we don't. We take care of ourselves more. Imagine what the world would look like if Christians had an ethic that said, I'm gonna love people as much as I love myself. And I'm gonna love God primarily. Imagine what it would look like if you loved your neighbor that way. So here's the most practical ways to be a wise person. You ready? It's not rocket science. Take time, discipline yourself to fall deeply in love with Jesus. Again, you don't, it doesn't just happen. I, I've been married, I guess, 12 years now. It's easier to fall out of love than it is to continue to stay in love. You have to continually pursue one another, date one another, give each other the benefit of the doubt, get to know one another. That should be your relationship with God too. It's not just pray a prayer and move on. It's continual development of this beautiful thing that God has given you, and then deeply love the people around you. Number two, wise people 
are humble enough to receive instruction. Look at verse three, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. I want you to notice how amazing this is. I'm gonna get into this in just a second, but there's a give and a take here, okay? If you want to be wise, you have to have the humility to receive some stuff, and then you have to have the ability to replicate that stuff and give it away to others. The book of James, which again is a New Testament proverb, says it like this in James chapter one. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness, that's, that's the getting rid of, and rampant wickedness, and here it is, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. You see the receiving? Wisdom is not achieved, it's received. This is so countercultural. You don't create it and you don't learn it. You open yourself up and make yourself available to receive it from Jesus. That's the point. It's not deeper knowledge. It does not matter how educated you are, you are not going to be wise unless you have the humility to receive instruction. In the most practical way, let me just ask you this question. Are you teachable? Are you teachable? Or are you like my nine-year-old that has the entire world figured out? Are you teachable? How about this? What is your initial reaction when you receive criticism? Is it they're just a bunch of idiots? If that's your initial reaction, that you don't know what you're talking about, you're not ready to be wise. Because listen, I've received a lot of criticism, a lot. And here's what I've come to realize. There's always something to be learned from criticism, even if it's not fun to get. Here's, here's a good thing that you can hold on to. Eat the fish and spit out the bones. Take the good, throw away the rest. The only way you'll ever do that is if you start with the assumption that there's something for you to learn in every correction that you receive, and you'll become more wise if you do that. Are you teachable? Like James says, you have to receive this with meekness. Now, here's what meekness is. Meekness is not weakness. It's humility under control. That's, that's such a powerful statement. When you're humble enough to receive instruction, you become a wise person. You are becoming the type of person, the type of person that has a character shaped by God, and all of wisdom is about having high character more than about doing different things. They're able and they're willing to learn the most important things in life, like righteousness, justice, and equity. See, wise people, wise people care about really important things. They care about the things that matter. They care about doing the right things, even whenever the right things are costly. And they're open to learning in these areas. Can I just say that sometimes if you want to learn the important things like righteousness, justice, and equity, and do this in wise dealings, you're going to have to surround yourself with people and learn from them, people that might not be like you, that might be different than you. I say this all the time, proximity breeds empathy. You have to be willing to put yourself around people that aren't like you. The closer you are to people and their stories, the more that you can enter into understanding. Now, real quick, because I hear this all the time, these words, righteousness, justice, and equity, they've been hijacked by culture. I get that. They mean a lot of different things by a lot of different people, but that does not mean that they're not important to God. God's people were the first people that should care about righteousness, justice, and equity. 
okay? Don't worry about the fact that people take words and move different things with them. No, grab onto what God cares about most and do those things. We should be leading the way in that. Number three is this. Wise people give away what they receive. Look at it again. To receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness is justice and equity and to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Here's what I'd say. This is the most beautiful thing. Wise people are multipliers. Listen, if all you do is show up to church to hear a good sermon and go home and never do anything with what God has entrusted to you, you're not living a wise life. Everything God gives, he gives to you to give it away to somebody else. That's the way that the church expands. Write this down. What they receive, they give away. This is the definition of discipleship. Notice who they give it to. They give prudence to the simple and knowledge and discretion to the youth. Prudence in in the original Hebrew means something like shrewdness, but not the bad kind. It simply means passing down practical ways to actually live in this world. And they give it to the youth or the simple, which simply means people that are younger without understanding. They say that the best teachers, the best teachers can take content, any content, and they can teach that to a 12-year-old. And the reason why is because you can distill down information and you understand it well enough that you can teach it to anybody. See, knowledge here that you see here is more about a particular kind of information. Remember verse seven, it's a wise information. It's about knowing God and giving that away to people as they come up. There is something absolutely powerful about when the older people in our Christian circles decide to take people underneath their wings and give away to them what they have learned from the Lord throughout all their years. Older men, let me just say this. What if you viewed the second half of your life through this lens and instead of phoning it in and sailing off to the sun, you decided that you've gained a lot of wisdom in your life and you're going to use the second half of your life to give away what God has given to you. I don't know if you know this or not, but the word retirement is not in the Bible. You simply get a different job description. God has given you something beautiful. And I'm pretty convinced that some of the older saints in our life have more wisdom than they've ever had. They have more time than they've ever had. They have more resources than they've ever had at their disposal. And God is sitting here saying, hey, it's not for you to sail off into the sun, but you are the most strategic people to build my kingdom. (laughs) What if you thought through that paradigm for just a second and you gave yourself away to the people around you? I can tell you there's a room filled with younger people that would love to sit with you and learn from you. Number four, Wise people are learners. Wise people are learners. Verse five, let the wise hear and increase in learning. See that? And the one who understands obtain guidance. To say it another way, leaders are learners. They never stop learning. What they receive from the Lord, they give away to others and they continue to learn. See, at City Church, at City Church, we believe, it's in our mission statement, we believe that God has equipped everyone in this room to be a multiplier. If you ever look at our mission statement, you ever learn it, we, we exist to facilitate a movement. Facilitate means I'm not the movement. We are the movement. Facilitate a movement of disciples who are multiplying other disciples and then they worship God, serve our city, and love our world. There's something beautiful and powerful about that. Listen to me. God wants to use you. He is using you. Notice that the wise don't just learn. They're increasing in their learning. 
They've sat with the Lord and they've received instruction and now they're giving it away and they're learning more and more and more. The other thing that you see here is that wise people obtain guidance. I think that what he means here is that they surround themselves with wise people. Wise people tend to surround themselves with wise people. I've heard it said that if you're the smartest person in the room, you need to go find a new room. That you need to surround yourself with people that you're always learning from. By the way, we do that around here. Let me just say really quickly that I believe that I work with some of the brightest and smartest minds on the planet. And I'm not afraid of that. I I look at Clayton, who has more degrees than a thermometer, and Jim, who ran organizations, and, you know, Zach, who is one of the most talented musicians I've ever seen. I think Dan in the back just retired, and he's running the soundboard. Guys, I learned so much from the people on our staff, and we're a better church because they are here. Matter of fact, I just learned the other day that Sam, Sam right here, I'm going to brag on you for just a second. I don't know if you know this or not, but Sam is an immigrant from Nigeria who moved to the U.S. without a job, got a job at LexisNexis, paved a way for his family to get here, who all attend our church. His parents are actually serving in City Kids right now. And Sam wrote a novel not long ago. I'm like, you, you're an author? Like, the, the man is brilliant. He runs our production team. He works full-time. He makes a way for his family to be here. His brother, who's in the room as well, right here, they're all amazing human beings. And sometimes, Sam, you don't even know that I would say this, but I'm going to say it publicly. I look up to you. You're, you're like one of my heroes, man. You're exactly who I want my kids to be as they grow up. I work with really, really awesome, talented people. And we do that because we believe that the more gifted they are, the better we are together. But you have to be humble enough to surround yourself with people like that. Here's my question for you. Do you want to be better or do you want Jesus to be glorified? Can I just tell you a secret too? The more you elevate other people around you, the more you'll get noticed too. If you're humble enough to do that, God's kingdom grows and people pay attention. Studies, studies will tell you that if, I, if you show me your five closest friends, I'll show you your future. Who are you surrounding yourself with? Are they making you better or are they making you worse? Let me give you five, real, or just a couple, I don't know if there's five, a couple real practical ways to be a learner. I mean, these are so practical. Like, you're gonna be like, duh. Here's, no, here's letter A, listen to podcasts. You know, sometimes I'm like, you don't listen to podcasts? The brightest minds in the entire world are putting information out there for you for free all the time. So instead of turning on the radio in my car or whenever I go on a run, I listen to podcasts. And listen, I never listen to podcasts without taking notes. People ask me, how do you do that? On a run, I'll send myself voice text as I'm running with timestamps. I did it yesterday in a Tim Keller sermon. Go back, to number, go back to minute 14 and listen to what he says about justice and take notes of it whenever you get to the house. I do this all the time. People ask me, how long does it take you to write a sermon? I'm always writing sermons. Because I'm always listening to things. I'm always listening to you, cataloging things. Don't go anywhere without a notebook. Your iPhone has a notebook built in. Just use that. There's tons of great resources out there, and they're all free. Let it be, read a book, read a chapter of a book a day. You know, sometimes I think it's not that hard. Average person can read one chapter in 15 minutes. If you read one chapter a day throughout the year, on average, you'll read about 26 books a year. Before you turn on Netflix, just take 15 minutes and open up a book and you will become a learner. And don't just read anything. Read widely, but read good theology. Ask people around you for recommendations and read. Here's another one. Do lunches with people you want to learn from. Y'all, 
If you will sit down with somebody and simply be a curious person, you will learn so much. Just take, take somebody to lunch. I promise you, anybody in this room, if you ask them, hey, can I buy you lunch and just hear you talk for an hour? They, you will stroke their ego so much that they will say yes. And ask good questions. You'll learn how to ask questions and you'll learn a lot of different information from different people. Here's the last one. Spend time with families. If you're a younger person in this room, I think the best way to get discipleship is to spend time with families. And what I mean by that, and I mean this, like just show up at their house, have dinner with them, go to the store with them. I was a Duke student once. I was like, hey, Billy, will you disciple me this year? I'm like, yeah, man, I got to go to Home Depot. Why don't you come with me? He's like, what do you mean? I was like, come on. At the end of the year, he spent numerous days. I took Fridays off. I watched my kids. I invited David to come along with me. He says, man, that was the best discipleship I've ever had. We didn't really open up the Bible all that much. What he got to see is the Bible transformed through real life. He got to see me and my wife argue with one another, the way I disciplined my kids, the way that the gospel intersected with reality. And then when we prayed and we studied the Bible together, it actually formed the type of person he was. Instead of dependent discipleship, where we sit down at a coffee shop for an hour and go verse by verse through a passage of scripture, what if you actually did life on life together? I'm telling you, if you're younger in this room, man, just ask somebody, hey, can I watch your kids and can I come over for the week? I promise you, they're not gonna say no and you will get more out of it than they will. Leaders are learners and wise people give away what they receive. Number five, wise people understand difficult things. Listen to what he says. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. I, I think that there's a different level of understanding that goes deeper with wise people. It's like they've learned the art of seeing the forest through the trees. You know what I mean? Think about it. When you've spent years cultivating a life and a relationship with Jesus, you sit under instruction and guidance from wise people. You take the time to teach other people. Again, if you ever want to know a subject, just teach it. Your level of preparation changes. And you are an accountable person. You start to see the world differently. Like when you live a little bit, you start to see the world differently. You can understand more, in, more complicated concepts and you discern the meaning behind the meeting. If you know what I mean, sometimes the thing isn't really the thing. Men, when your wife tells you, I'm good, that doesn't mean she's good, right? Sometimes like, hey, baby, can I help you with something? No, no, I got it. What she really means is, you shouldn't have to ask, just go do it. Sometimes the thing isn't really the thing. When somebody shows up to work and they're in a bad mood, they're five minutes late to a meeting, they just blew up on you, maybe there's something going on a little deeper underneath the surface. Wise people Wise people can see that. They can discern that. See, oftentimes, oftentimes what's going on on the surface of people's lives isn't what's going on below the surface. But the problem is, number one, we either don't have enough wisdom to ask the right questions, or if I'm honest with you, we're too selfish to ask the right questions because it takes too much time. Wise people ask. Listen to me. You don't fall into wisdom. You don't age into wisdom, and you don't learn into wisdom. Wisdom is something that is received as you pursue a relationship with Jesus. And it all hinges on verse seven. See it again? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I'm telling you, if you don't know Jesus, you might be smart, but you won't be wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That means that you have to start with the fear of God. It means you have to start with reverence and awe and put him in his proper place. If your reference point is not God, 
you will get every other thing wrong. Let me say it like this. This is why culture is so far off. They start with a different reference point, which means that even if they are trying to do the right thing, it's not going to work out. This is why so many of you continue to find yourself in horrible situations. You're starting with yourself. It's never going to work out that way. Like your ultimate happiness is in God and it's not in your happenstances. That's why there's a difference between joy and happiness, right? Culture, they start with this abstract idea of love. But if you really read the Bible, God is love. And the reason why God is love is you're made in his image, which means that you find your ultimate fulfillment in the thing that you were designed to do. C.S. Lewis, he talks about it like this. I haven't done this illustration in a long time. He talks about like a fish in a fishbowl. That fish is swimming around in the fishbowl, and he's like, man, like, I'm stuck here. I feel like I'm enslaved to this thing. Like, I can't believe it. The rest of the world's out there doing whatever they want. So what does the fish do? The fish gets the crazy idea. He's like, I'm out of here. I'm going to go live in freedom. So he jumps out of the fishbowl. But what does he do? He jumps to his death, not to his life. And Lewis says that, that that's because your ultimate freedom is living in the reality that you were designed to live in. Too many of us continue to jump out to these things that we think are freedom, and I'm telling you, at the end of the day, all it's doing is killing you over and over again. Man, I don't want to live this way. It's so restricting, so we jump out. But you realize this. If you have kids, you realize this. Fences, fences are designed to do two things. They're designed to either keep people out or to keep you in to have a safe space to play. God's word can be looked at two different ways. Listen to me. God's fences is like a beautiful playground for you to play in safety. That's why it's meant to be that way. And I'm telling you, I have lived in both worlds. I've been the guy who partied like a rock star. You know, I wasn't like the preacher's kid that grew up and did everything. No, I, I grew up in a family that was hostile to the gospel. I went off to college, played sports, and I lived like a rock star. And all it did was make me depressed and need more and empty and lonely, and it never, ever worked. I started walking with Jesus. At first, I thought, this is restricting. It's awful. And little by little, I started rediscovering joy in my life because God's word really does bring fulfillment. Jesus says, he is the author and perfecter of our faith, and joy is found in him, John 10, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't begin with God, everything else will be foolish. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your callings, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Thanks, Paul. Not many of you were powerful, and not many of you were of a noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Y'all, the gospel is foolishness to the world because you can't earn it. All you can do is receive it. It runs contrary to worldly wisdom. And the question I have for you is, are you humble enough to become wise? You see, the fear of the Lord does that. It makes you become the humble type of person that recognizes that God chose you. You didn't choose him. 
You didn't do anything to earn his affections. And yet, you have them. As a matter of fact, your situation, according to the Bible, was so bad that Christ had to die for you. That God had to put on flesh to live your perfect life and die your death in your place. Now, do you know what that does to you? It boldens you. It shows you just how much he loves you. It puts you in your proper place. To know that Jesus paid your ultimate price, to know that he did everything necessary to save you, it humbles you. See, and if God loved you that much, you can trust him with your life. You can learn from him and you can walk with him. That's the point. The wisest people let God guide their lives. They become the type of person that becomes like Jesus. And as they do that, everything changes. This is what Paul says. Be an imitator of me as I imitate him. That's the key to wisdom. Wisdom isn't knowledge. Wisdom is a person. And his name is Jesus. If you don't know him, if you don't know John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, that Jesus was the word who put on flesh and dwelt among us so that in him he can live in you. Wisdom is not about knowing a bunch of skills. It's about knowing and having a relationship with a person. And his name is Jesus. And the longer you know him, the more you become like him. 